All right. Well, this morning we, uh, I mentioned in the email, we have a pretty long text that we're going through. I'm not going to read through it all. I'm going to uh, hit the big, the big parts, um, but I pray that you will read through it this week if you haven't already. Um, it's valuable, and we're going to try and, we, we teach expositorially here, so we walk through it. And so uh, hopefully you'll, you'll, if you haven't already read it, you'll, you'll reread it uh, this week. Um, so we'll be in Second uh, Samuel 2 and verse 12 we'll start. But in James chapter 4, starting in verse 1, it says this, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And then skipping down to verse 4, four You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This passage very explicitly tells us why fights and quarrels arise. It's because we want something and we aren't getting it, and so we take drastic actions. However, even worse is that we learn this way of living and being is actually the antithesis of godly living. Right? This is worldly living. Living this way displays our friendship with the world and its systems and the prince of the power of the air who rules over it. People who live this way, friendship with the world, are in opposition to God, making themselves in opposition to God. And, and, and of course, the worst part is that they are actively doing this, actively making themselves as enemy. Last week, we learned... And we discussed that humility, and, and talked about how humility is, is one of, if not the defining traits of someone who is in allegiance to God and His kingdom. And we saw this through David and his first taking actions as, his first actions as king, through his inquiring of the Lord and, and his humble honoring of the men of Jabesh-Gilead. And then at the end of our text, we saw Abner not act out of humility, but rather out of arrogance and pride. We learned that Ishbosheth. Uh, only reigned two years, and that David ruled seven in Hebron, which means most likely David had already reigned about five years before Abner made Ishbosheth king. Abner's move was calculated and a planned, thoughtful response in an attempt in an attempt to keep keep the kingship over Israel within the family of Saul. This was a prideful move, and it would prove to be a costly one. We have, a, again, a long text uh, this morning. I'm not going to read all of it. But the whole text revolves around three main incidents, and each one includes Abner. And so it is through now the life of Abner and his life that we will see the extreme consequences of prideful, arrogant living in the way that it makes one an enemy of God. And so we'll start in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. Abner, the son of Ner... And the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, and one on one side of the pool, and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, Let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number, twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. 
Therefore the place was called Helkath Hazarim, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was very fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. So Abner, after making Ishbosheth king of Israel, sets out from Manahem, Mahanaim to Gibeon. And our text does not specifically say why Abner was going towards Gibeon. It could have been a few different reasons. Maybe Abner was going to try and gain some support for Ishbosheth. Uh, maybe he was making a power play in, in, in David's direction. The one thing we do know is that Gibeon is only about uh, 23 miles away from Hebron, which is where David was ruling. And so Abner, taking Ishbosheth's men in the direction of Gibeon, is an offensive maneuver. Okay, the reason Joab even took David's men out to meet Abner's men was a proactive defensive measure. If there's a small army marching towards you in your kingdom, you probably want to send out a contingent of men to look into it. And again, the text does not necessarily say that there is an intention to start a battle, to start a fight. But Joab and his men are not letting Abner get any closer to Hebron. And so there's this impasse. They come to this place and it's a, a bit of a stalemate, and they all sit down at this pool, and Abner is the one that says, well, let the young men compete before us. Now, this word compete uh, can mean to have a contest or a fight, so let the men fight. And we don't actually know if this was like a, a representative contest, kind of, kind of how David was with Goliath, or they just wanted, you know, to wrestle, <laughs> like to fight. I don't, we, we aren't entirely sure, but we do know what happens, probably like most boys if you let them fight long enough, what happens? All right, tempers get heated, and people start pulling out swords. Just kidding. In this particular instance, though, they did. They pulled out swords, and they started killing each other. And after this, of course, a full-on battle breaks out, and David's men ultimately win the day. So not only, of course, was Joab there, but Joab's brothers, Abishai and Azahel, were also there. Now, Azahel was fast like a gazelle. That's why it rhymes. Uh, and he didn't think it was enough for the army to win the battle, right? And so he wanted Abner. Why? Because Abner was the leader of Ishbosheth's army. And so he takes off after him, and Abner begins pleading with Azahel to stop chasing him. But Azahel continues chasing and refuses to stop. It says he wouldn't even look to his right or to his left, but he kept his eye on the prize. But even though Azahel had the speed, Abner had the spear. And Abner makes a rear thrust, and Azahel as he is coming up on him, and, and, and the translation is a little challenging. It makes it seem like the, it was the blunt end of the spear. It could also mean it was like a rear thrust. But either way, he stabs Azahel, and it goes all the way through, and he dies. And it, it, it wasn't good. It was shocking. The text says that everyone who passed by came to the place where Azahel died and, and stood still, right? It was a shocking death. And so to finish this narrative, Joab and his brother Abishai and their men continue to pursue Abner until they come to a place called Amah, where the Benjaminites, you know, Saul's people, came and made their stand with Abner. And Abner calls out, okay, enough. Stop. You know, enough bloodshed. How long does this need to go on? And Joab says, man, we'd have, we'd have gone all night. And for whatever reason, uh, Joab decides to end the pursuit and calls off his men. And they were given an account of David, that David's men lost 19 men total. That was including the twelve. Uh, from the original contest, and Abner's men lost 360. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. So the overall point I want to make here 
is that Abner's arrogance, Abner's pride, was the ultimate cause of the violence that happened. You may think, well, you know, he didn't try to get those 12 men killed. It just maybe escalated, or he clearly didn't want to kill Azahel because he, he, he wouldn't stop pursuing him, right? It was self-defense. And I would say that the problem actually started long before that. The violence that happened was simply a result of the fruit of the original sinful arrogance and desire of Abner to not relinquish the throne to David, right? Abner's pride is the fuel that drove everything to this violence. Just like we spoke about in James 4, Abner wants something and he's not getting it. And so there's conflict and there's murder. His passion is at war within him. His heart is in the wrong, and so the fruit that grows out of it will only lead to this conflict and this fighting and this quarreling. The violence that happens is a fruit produced by the pride in Abner's heart. And it's the same for us. It is the same for us. We studied James, you know, last, uh, the last book we studied, and, and we learned that when our passions are at war within us, when we're wanting something in our pride and we th- we're thinking we deserve it, the fruit of that pride will be sinful. It won't be good, and it looks like conflict and fighting and opposition to godly ways. A, a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. And I would say this fruit being grown from the, the root long before it manifests into fruit form. We need to be developing, uh, as we talked about last week, that humility, a humble way of being and thinking long before it gets to the conflict stage, right? This is why, as again, as we spoke of last week, humility is so vital to our sanctification and to our growth in godliness. In our homes, when conflict starts to escalate, we want something so bad that we're willing to sin to get it. That's pride fueling the conflict. And it's opposed, it's in opposition to godly living. It's just the outworking of the fruit of pride that has been growing for some time. Okay, so, so yes, there's this action. Yes, it is wrong. It's conflict that is an outworking of something that has been growing long before, just like Abner. And so conflict and fighting are born out of our pride, but there is another problem which arises out of pride. Let's go down to chapter 3, verse 6. So while there is a war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ai. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? And then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. God do so to Abner and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. In verse 6, we see Abner's intentions. He was making himself strong in the house of Saul. And there's this concubine of Saul's named Rizpah uh, that maybe Abner was hanging around too much or, or, or possibly seeking to pursue. Maybe it was a false accusation entirely. But Ishbosheth, who is clearly timid and weak in comparison to Abner, sees this and accuses Abner of being with Rizpah. And this is a big deal because in, in, in Eastern tradition, when someone is trying to take the throne or, or, or take power from a king, or from a kingly line that has passed, taking concubines and, and, and being with them 
taking the harem, as it were, is, is a sign of intention to overtake the throne. And so Ishbosheth gathers enough courage to accuse Abner, and it does not go well. Abner gets angry and says, in a paraphrased version, I have shown you nothing but love, this, this hesed love, this covenant faithfulness to the house of Saul, and this is how I'm treated. The only reason your king is me, the only reason David hasn't taken you out is me, and yet you accuse me. That's it. That is it. Let God punish me if I fail to accomplish what God has set out to do for David, which is to transfer the kingdom from Saul to David. Abner is finally submitting to what he knew God had declared from the beginning, but it's not out of obedience. It's out of pride. Okay, from, from there, Abner really does that. He leaves Ishbosheth, confers with the different elders of Israel, uh, and, and he's you know, acting like he is totally pro David. In verse 17, Abner says to the elders of Israel, For some time past, you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then, bring it about. For the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel. Now he's trying to convince the elders of, of uh, Israel to, to follow David rather than Ishbosheth. And then this fir- the first narrative with Abner, I, I wanted really to convey the pride that, that fuels the conflict. Right? But in this one, I want to convey the pride uh, that fuels what I'm calling politicking, right? Politicking. And you're like, what is politicking, right? And when I say politicking, I don't really mean, you know, Republican versus Democrat. I don't mean president versus dictator. What I mean is more uh, ungodly advancement at the sake of your morality, at the sake of your principles. You know, it is the thing that where you have your best interest at heart, and you'll go along with a plan until something better comes along, and then you use your energy and influence to try and better your position at the expense of what you know is right. In our modern system, we do have a two-party system, for better or worse, but what often happens is when they try and get legislation passed, they give and take, right? Okay, you'll get my vote on this, but you have to give me this later. You know, I'll say okay to this, but then you have to agree with this other thing, right? And you're politicking to try and get your, your, your way, Right? I, want, I want this, but I'm willing to give up this if you give me this. Okay? And, and, and so what happens, it may not seem like this is necessarily what Abner's doing, but when Ishbosheth made his accusation, Abner's scheme was up. He was trying to make himself strong in the house of Saul. He was using Ishbosheth to try and grow his power and influence in Saul's house. There's a very real possibility, although the text doesn't say that he was trying to grow strong enough to make a push for the throne. But when Ishbosheth pushed back, Abner realized the jig's up. And now, instead of trying to work it out and submit to Ishbosheth, who is the king, instead of submitting to the king that he installed, and in his pride and anger, Abner took his proverbial ball and, and left. He went somewhere else. He realized he wasn't going to get what he wanted here, so he figured he would try and get maybe the next best thing, which is a prominent place in David's kingdom or possibly in David's army. Friends, sometimes in our own pride, we politic a little bit, right? And sometimes maybe we don't do it intentionally. I remember uh, back when I traveled in the, the, the music industry, I saw this all the time, you know, just trying to be close to, to some famous person to see what they could get. You know, I had friends who were in quote-unquote Christian bands or Christians in bands that would, you know, Oh, confess Jesus from the stage, but if I can hang out with this person, I'll agree with anything you want me to say. 
you know, and, and that, that was just so disappointing. And I think what happens, we, we, have to, we have to recognize this type of ungodly advancement as pride. And the reason it's pride is that it makes us takers and not givers, okay? It makes us takers and not givers. When we politic or seek this ungodly advancement at the expense of our allegiance to God and His ways and His kingdom, we give up our humility we become takers and not givers, and that's pride. People of God's kingdom are not takers. They are givers, givers of their time and energy and money, and their, whatever influence they have given by God, they use it to give and to share the gospel. And Friends, we, we have to stand up for what is correct and right and godly, even if it's at the expense of what it, it, it might cost us. It should cost us. When we are givers rather than takers, it will cost us, but that's okay. Because, because we trust that it is God's way, and God's way is a better way. He will ultimately bless us for being obedient to Him. When we seek ungodly advancement and make allegiance with the world, the fruit of it that it produces will be revealed, just like it was with Abner. So we want to be humble and be givers and not takers. And so back to our narrative Abner sends messengers to David, who ultimately arranged to, to meet and, and, and make a covenant with Abner, and he sends Abner away in peace, it says. And then Joab actually shows up, and he hears about this meeting between Abner and David, and he becomes angry, and he accuses David of sending Abner away, because he, Joab said he believed that Abner was trying to deceive David. As it turns out, though, Joab is still vengeful towards Abner for killing his brother, Azahel. So Joab sends for Abner. And takes him, pulls him aside in the gate, and murders Abner. And it says, for the blood of Azahel, his brother. Now, I don't have to tell you that this is truly awful for a lot of reasons. And one of the reasons it's so awful is it displays pride as the fuel for vengeance. Okay, it displays pride for the fuel of vengeance. One of the reasons it's so awful is in Deuteronomy 32, the Lord says, vengeance is mine. And then in Romans 12, Paul says, beloved, never avenge yourself. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Have you ever thought about why vengeance is prideful? It's, it's surprisingly simple, right? God has said repeatedly in Scripture, He is the judge. He's a righteous judge. Right and wrong are His to judge. And when we seek out and take vengeance on someone, it's prideful because we're assuming God's role as judge. We're declaring ourselves judge and jury and executioner. God has used humans as agents of judgment, just like he did with Israel in the conquest of the land, or when he establishes governments to, to punish wrongdoers. But he is very clear about his instructions for individuals not taking vengeance on other individuals. That's for him and him alone. So when Joab murders Abner, that's pride displayed through the act of vengeance. And it's all a part of what James 4 is saying is friendship with the world, which, is makes, which makes one an enemy of God. It's not God's way for us to take vengeance. We don't get to assume God's role as judge, as Joab did. And even within our story, it's wrong for a lot of ways. Okay, first, although Abner killed Azahel, it wasn't murder. It wasn't in cold blood. It was in self-defense. It was in the context of war. Okay, it, it, there was a stipulation in the law that if, uh, you, you know, someone murdered your family member, and it was found, you were found to be guilty, like that another family member could execute that judgment. But that's not what happened here. 
This was in battle. Secondly, David had sent Abner away in peace. Right? The king had made peace with Abner, and Joab knew this after their conversation. Thirdly, in Joshua 21, 13, Joshua gives Hebron, the place where they are, to the priests as a, as a, uh, as a city of refuge, right? which means uh, 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 someone who accidentally kills someone can flee there and stay safe until, until it is, a trial is had, and, 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 and you know, one can assume guilt or, uh, or, or can be found guilty or not guilty. And Abner probably knew this about Hebron and felt safe when he, even when he saw Joab at Hebron, and yet Joab murdered him in cold blood. You see, left unfettered, left undealt with, pride will do this. Pride will drive someone to seek out vengeance against someone else. I've met people uh, through, through being a pastor, through counseling, who are so angry that it just simmers right below the surface, and it feels like at any time they could just snap. And it's because, literally, I've had a family member who was murdered or hurt or someone taking advantage of them or stealing from them. Friends, when we are deeply, deeply hurt by someone, it's so easy. And in fact, I'd say in our, 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 it is our fleshly, natural tendency to gravitate towards thinking and feeling feelings towards vengeance, retribution. But I want to lovingly tell you that that is pride whispering death into your ear and into your heart. And that pride will eat at you and keep you in bondage, and it is not freedom. Now, Lord willing, none of us will end up as Joab and murder anyone over seeking vengeance. But for us, we, we do take our vengeance out on people, right? I mean, it can be something as simple as holding a grudge or icing someone out of a friend group or a relationship, refusing to pick up the phone when someone is trying to call you, speak with you, maybe holding something over someone's head. Maybe it looks like refusing to forgive someone who's sinned against you. You see, all these things are, are how the world handles and responds to being hurt. It is not how God desires us to handle them as Christians. And any time we act in our pride, whether it's the pride of violence or, or, or the, the, the pride of ungodly advancement or the pride of vengeance, make it, we make ourselves an enemy to God and His ways because pride is the fuel that produces opposition to God's kingdom. Okay, pride is the fuel that produces opposition to God's kingdom. Last week we talked about how humility being a defining trait of those who are in allegiance to God and to God's kingdom. In the same way, pride is a defining trait of those who are in opposition to God's kingdom. And if you are full of pride in here this morning, and I'm not sitting here telling you you need to get saved, uh, we all struggle with pride. What I am saying is that when we act in our pride, we are driving a wedge between us and God's way of living. And we're making ourselves an enemy towards what God is trying to do in this world and through our life. We don't want to live this way. It's deadly. We should seek to put this pride to death in our life. It is not bringing you the fullness of life and the fullness of joy that God longs to bring to you and display through your life towards others, right? It is not the way we are called to live. As we close, I want us to look again to King David, a man after God's own heart, he see, and see how he responds. First, in verse 28, he hears about what happens, and he says, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for this. He says, we didn't have anything to do with this murder 
of Abner. He pronounces a curse on the house of Joab. And then in verse 31, it says this, 3 verse 31. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes and put sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the beard. They buried Abner at Hebron. The king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound. Your feet were not fettered as one falls before the wicked you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God, do so to me and more also, if I taste bread or anything else, till the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them, as everything that the king did pleased all the people. And so all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, Do not... Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zariah, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. You see, David, he's not having it. <laughs> he's not impressed. He, he chooses no more bloodshed, but he makes Joab and Abishai mourn for Abner. And David followed the body of Abner to the burial site, and he wept and lamented for Abner. Abner wasn't a good guy, right? But this is how this humble king responded. He doesn't want conflict in Israel. It's not the way that he chooses to respond. Even though the people tried to get David to eat and drink, he wouldn't do it because he wanted to make sure that everyone knew he had nothing to do with this. This was not his doing. And the unfortunate irony of it all is that the death of Abner really did bring the kingdom closer to being unified. The people saw how David mourned, and it pleased them, and everything he did pleased them, and they knew he had nothing to do with it. And then he really ends with a, a bit of a mic drop, because he says, listen, I was king, but I was gentle with you. It's his way of saying, I should execute you for what you did, but I'm not going to. But the Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. That hurts. <laughs> that hurts. Again, this reality exists even today. If someone does not know God, does not believe in Him by faith and seek forgiveness for their sins, they will be repaid for their wickedness, right? If they go on in their pride, they will be repaid for their wickedness, which is eternity apart from God in hell. The fruit of their lives will be pride and arrogance, and that fruit will be able to be seen in their lives through maybe conflict, through desire for advancement, through taking at the cost of their morals and the desire for vengeance, it will be seen because pride fuels opposition to God's kingdom. If, however, someone is a follower of Jesus, they have confessed their sin and their need for Jesus and believe in him for salvation, they will be saved. They will not be judged according to their prideful deeds. Rather, they will be seen as in Christ through trusting in his death and resurrection. And their judgment will be according to the good works for rewards, not for salvation, God will grant them rewards based on their good works. Friends, we want to hear from the Lord on that day, well done, good and faithful servant, right? We want to hear that. And just as we learned that last week, humility is the fuel that drives our obedience and our love for God. Pride fuels opposition to that. We don't want to be people who adhere to and practice friendship with the world because it puts us in opposition to God and His kingdom. We want to be kingdom-minded, people who are humble, and display this with our life. 
and people who long for the return of the king. And we display that through our humility towards others. Let me pray. Lord, thank you again for our time this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this text. God, it is the unfortunate truth of your word that sometimes we have to see the wrong way uh, through the lives of, of those who chose to be disobedient. But God, we know that you work all things together for good, and you can even use the story of Abner and the story of Joab and the story of David to teach us, to give us wisdom, to learn how not to do things and how to do things. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us all to recognize, even as we talked about last week, to, to work to recognize places in our life where we are not humble, or a better way of saying is where we are prideful. And I pray that you would continue to, to, to convict us by your Spirit in places in our lives that we are prideful, so that we can put that to death and be humble people who, who are peacemakers, not conflict makers, who are givers and not takers. And Lord, who trust you that even the evil that might be done to us will be judged by you on that day that we don't have to take it into our own hands and we can live free and we can forgive and we can live in a way that is different than the way that the world lives. And that way we would glorify you in all that we do, Lord. And I pray that you would be with us now in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to turn now to the Lord's Supper. Um, our people who are hanging, handing it out, please uh, come and, and get ready. And, and, you know, this is, again, the time where we get to recognize Christ. He is the, the ultimate example of humility, uh, and I pray that we would just see that in him and that we would take this time to uh, think about that, think about the life and death and resurrection and the great humility that it took to, to come from his station in heaven and, and put on humanity, add humanity to his deity and, and die on our behalf and so that we could be saved, so that his blood could wash us clean. And so now... We won't be judged by our works and evil deeds. Rather, we will be saved through his death and resurrection. And so, uh, you guys can hand that out. Please hold on to it, and I'll come back up. We'll read, and we'll take it together. <laughs> 